Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we're going to have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can uh, get in fellowship. I don't know what the ladies talked about before we started prayer, before you all started prayer meeting tonight, but the guys started talking about politics and we had to all get back in fellowship again before, before we could pray. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to uh, focus on the study of the word tonight. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way in which you have worked in our lives to, as you have made your word clear to us, and that as we have applied it, we have seen you work in our lives, and we have seen the importance of learning your word and studying your word and the importance of putting it into practice. Now, Father, as we continue our study tonight in Kings, as we continue to study the various doctrines that you've revealed there, we pray that you would use that to uh, open our eyes to a greater understanding of how you work in history because our lives are just a, a part of that history. And as you work in the lives of those in the Old Testament, so you still work in our lives, working out that which you have uh, planned from eternity past. Now, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with the things that we study tonight as God the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, and last time I did a comparison, character contrast between uh, Rehoboam as he is the son of Solomon coming to the throne to uh, succeed his father Solomon and uh, Solomon as he was when he first took the throne and focused on the fact that that what we see in Rehoboam, even though he is some 20, probably 21 years older than Solomon was when he came to the throne, Solomon had a degree of humility such that when God asked him uh, what he wanted, that God would give him any desire of his heart, Solomon wanted wisdom. He didn't ask for riches or victory over his enemies or territorial expansion. He wanted wisdom to rule his people. He understood that humility was at the very core of leadership. And also we read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon's heart was completely devoted to the Lord. He continued to follow in the footsteps of his father David and applying all of the law in his life other than with the exception of of uh, not completely destroying the high places in Israel. In contrast, we saw that Rehoboam exhibits the characteristics of what the Bible calls a fool. 
He is naive. He does not respect the law. It is not a priority in his life, and because of that, he has no skill at living, and he has no wisdom, fundamentally because he has no humility. So it's the contrast between arrogance and humility. And as we looked at that last time, I just want to go back over a couple of the verses I highlighted to show this contrast from the Scripture. Psalm 19 uh, 7 through 10, we looked at last time. I just want to remind you of Psalm 19:7, which puts the focus on the Word of God. Psalm 19 is a tremendous meditation on God's revelation of Himself non-verbally in the heavens. The Psalm 19:1 says, "The heavens declare the glory of God." That's the non-verbal revelation of God, which is called by the theologians general. Revelation. General revelation is the nonverbal revelation of God through His creation. That we can learn certain things about God through His uh, through His creation. We see that in also in Romans chapter one verses eighteen and following. And then starting in Psalm nineteen seven, the shift is to God's uh, special revelation. This is His specific revelation. Uh, that is inscripturated in the canon of Scripture. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The word there in the Hebrew indicates that which is complete or full. It restores the soul. It, it, it brings back, it recovers the soul from the effects of sin. And then the second uh, strophe there is what's important. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the word there that is translated simple uh, simple has a different connotation in English. The word simple here in Hebrew has the idea of the one who is youthful or exhibits the characteristics of the youth in terms of being naive or inexperienced. And that certainly characterized Rehoboam. He was 41 when he uh, became king, when he succeeded Solomon, but he did not have any real experience at leadership, and so it shows some of the flaws here of uh, having inexperienced leaders. I'll let you make your own application. May God the Holy Spirit apply that principle to your hearts this evening. We need to have leaders who have experience, uh, especially in times of crisis, and that's exactly what was going on in Israel at this particular time, but we see how God is working in the background as he is bringing about the discipline upon the nation through an inexperienced leader. I'm not making any prophecies. We'll just have to wait and see. The contrast, the point I'm making here is the contrast between Solomon as a leader and his son Rehoboam is that Solomon had genuine humility. He submitted himself to the word of God And the word of God shaped his thinking so that what he desired more than anything else was the wisdom that comes from God's word. So that when God asked him what he wanted, that is what he focused on. Whereas Rehoboam is more concerned about securing his own uh, empire and securing the all of the trappings that go with authority so that he will reject the advice given to him by the elder statesmen who had advised his father who were experienced, and he goes with the advice of the 
of the young men who were of his own age, actually, which would be in their probably in their 30s to 40 uh, age range. Another thing we learn about the fool in the Bible is a verse in Psalm 14:1 and in 53:1, one of the few verses in Scripture that's repeated twice. And whenever the Holy Spirit repeats a verse, then we ought to pay attention to it. And the verse reads, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. This isn't Christopher Hitchens writing a book extolling atheism. That's not in his heart. That is in print. The book. This doesn't say the fool has said in print there is no God. This is the person who acts, who functions within his soul as if there's no God, as if there's no accountability, as if he can run his life on his own terms totally apart from God. Now, the person who uh, rejects God internally may eventually reject God ex- externally and take a position of atheism, but this isn't really just talking about atheism. This is talking about the person who, in terms of their soul, in terms of how they're living and how they're thinking, are functional atheists. And there's all sorts of religious people who affirm the existence of God who are functional atheists in the way they think. And that is what we see with Rehoboam. He acts as if he is completely uh, set apart from any accountability to the God who establishes covenant with, uh, with the Israelites. Another verse we looked at is Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. That goes with our previous verse. There's no external authority. It's like the, uh, is a verse that is similar to the key verse that we find. Again, a verse that's mentioned twice in Judges. And that expresses the theme of the book of Judges, that uh, there was no king in Israel at that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So that is, when you put these two verses together, that's just another way of saying they were all fools. They had rejected God as the king over Israel, and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. It's the opposite of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, Proverbs emphasizes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the contrast is between the fool who doesn't listen to others and is going to be hell-bent on following their own agenda, no matter what the counsel is, and just seek someone who will affirm uh, their, what they want to hear. And that's the way, unfortunately, the way a lot of people are. That's one of the great problems that I think many counselors run into when people, and pastors, when people come to them for counseling, is people are simply seeking validation for their own agenda as opposed to having genuine humility and wanting to correct that which needs to be corrected. Uh, Proverbs 14.6 says, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. This certainly characterizes uh, Rehoboam and his actions as we see them in 1 Kings uh, chapter 12. So 1 Kings chapter 12 represents a major turning point in the history of Israel because it is at this point that we see a tax revolt take place. The ten nations in the north are going to revolt against the leadership of the Davidic king, God has established the Davidic monarchy, but this is in the human realm. They are revolting against uh, the Davidic king, but this is brought about ultimately 
Uh, God is allowing this to occur as discipline on the nation because of their idolatry and their failure to uh, to follow him. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, and the first thing we should note is that there is a geographical reference here, and many people uh, have a uh, pr- problem when it comes to geography, especially if you haven't walked around Israel very much. And that's one of the great values of going to Israel, especially for a pastor, is all of a sudden everything begins to make a lot more sense when you start to read the Bible. Now, what I've got up on the screen for you is a map of the uh, central part of the nation Israel, just a little bit of the, the Negev. The southern part is chopped off at the bottom and a little bit of the top part up around Dan, north of the Hula Valley, is chopped off because the focal point of this passage is in the central uh, highlands. Just so you can orient yourself, you have the Mediterranean off to the left as you face the uh, map. You have the Dead Sea down here on the uh, lower, or in the map, it's really in the center uh, bottom, uh, called the Salt Sea in Genesis. Up at the top, you have the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, also called the uh, Canaret Lake. And then flowing out of the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, flowing south, is the River Jordan down into into the Dead Sea. Just west of the northern part of the Dead Sea, you have Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been the focal point in uh, in, in kings up to this point, this is where David's palace is. This is where the uh, succession occurred going from David to Solomon. This is where all of Solomon's building projects are. This is where he has uh, built the temple to God on Mount Moriah. But this is not where this meeting is going to occur that is described in 1 Kings chapter 12. We read in verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem. Shechem is about uh, 50 miles north of Jerusalem in the uh, central highlands of what is now uh, Samaria. This is all part of what is the West Bank, and it is the modern city of Nablus. And if you, you can see on the map here that this is where Shechem is located, and just to the north uh, west is Mount Ebal, and just to the southwest is Mount Gerizim. So this is a very important location within the uh, within the history of Israel. This was a, one of the fir- this was the first place where Abraham built an altar when he came into the land that God had promised him. He had come down from the north, from up in Syria, and as he came into the land, the first place that he stopped and built an altar to God was here at Shechem, and this is where God reiterated to him the promise that he would give him this land. So this has a tremendous background here. It is a reminder that this land was promised to Israel by God. Later on, uh, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, settled here, and when he settled there, his daughter Dinah uh, was raped by Shechem, the prince of the city, the son of Hamor, who was the ruler of the city. Hamor was a Hivite, 
And so we studied this when we went through Genesis. This is when uh, Dinah's brothers concocted a little scheme that uh, uh, Shechem wanted to marry Dinah. And so they said, well, if you want to marry our sister, the first thing you have to do is all the men in the city have to be circumcised. So after all the men in the city were circumcised and were going through their post-surgical pain, then they, the brothers fell upon the Shechemites and massacred all the males in Shechem. So Dinah's brothers, the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, were just lovely men. And this was led primarily by Levi and Simeon, who carried out uh, that particular massacre. So it it's, uh, has another significance later on as it became a place located between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. When the tribes came out of Egypt, they came into the land after the conquest of uh, Jericho and Ai, and some of the other areas, they came to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and there they recommitted themselves to obedience to the Mosaic Law. The conquest generation then was committing themselves to fulfilling the Mosaic Law. You had six tribes were lined up on Mount Ebal, six tribes lined up on Mount Gerizim, and they echoed the law back and forth to one another in a tremendous ceremony of confirmation and recommitment to the Mosaic Law. So this has this this history behind it. Furthermore, Shechem later became a key city in the Central Highlands as a city of refuge, but one of its darkest periods occurred during the period of the Judges. Again, a dark period when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and the men of Shechem decided to that they wanted a ruler, and so they had gone to uh, Gideon after his victory and wanted to make him king. Gideon turned it down. And so they took his son, Abimelech, and they made Abimelech uh, king over Israel. That's one of my favorite trivia questions to ask people is who was the first person made king over Israel. And most people want to say, well, that was Saul. But according to Judges chapter 9, the men of Shechem made uh Abimelech, king over Israel. Uh, I didn't ask who was the first person God anointed to be king over Israel. I just asked who was the first person made king over Israel. Abimelech. And so this was a sign of the rebellious nature that you see throughout uh, history that is uh, that, that goes along with with Shechem and the northern kingdom. And one of the things that you see and that we notice as we look at the history of Israel is that the the spiritual qualities and desires of the tribes really vary. Uh, as you see on the map, Shechem is on the border between the uh, tribal lands allotted to Ephraim and those allotted to uh, Manasseh or Menasheh. And Ephraim was a tribe that was often associated with idolatry and rebelliousness towards God, as was the tribe of Dan. And they were at the lower end of the spectrum. That's why uh, neither is mentioned in the listing of the tribes in Revelation chapter uh, 7, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings with the 12,000 uh, from each of the twelve tribes, Joseph is mentioned in the name as a uh, instead of Ephraim because Joseph was Ephraim's father, and Dan is is left out of the list. 
because these two names are, these two tribes were of the most pagan of the uh, Jewish tribes, of these Israeli tribes. Judah, on the other hand, was one of the tribes that exhibited the strongest and most positive volition towards God uh, historically uh, down through the ages. Now, the other thing that we should note about Shechem was by having this meeting in Shechem, it was getting uh, Rehoboam out of his power base, out of his uh, zone of comfort, out of his area, uh, the, the area of, of Judah, so that if things did not go right, then he would have to flee. It was well-designed a meeting place, and it shows that they did not, they, it, this was well-planned, they did not anticipate that Rehoboam would, would go along with their scheme, and so they were setting things up to promote their own, uh, their own agenda. And it also shows that they were rejecting Jerusalem as the key city in Israel. And remember, we just read back in chapter 11, in verse 36, a reference to Jerusalem as the city which God is speaking there. He says, Jerusalem is the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So by having this meeting in Shechem, the author is also pointing out to us something. Uh, he's, he's making a subtle reference to the lack of uh, spirituality of the northern tribes, their rejection of God. Remember, the whole nation has succumbed to idolatry at the end of Solomon's reign, and they've rejected God, Jerusalem as God's choice as the capital. So they are already uh, have their eye on a new location. And this also reflects a, uh, an attitude of jealousy and division that had occurred between the ten northern tribes and the tribe of Judah ever since uh, David had been uh, chosen by God, and this is part of the background to this, is this conflict between Judah and the other tribes. Now, as you look at the chapter, you should note that verse 1 is a topical sentence, or sort of a summary of the action. And the reason I point that out is it if you read it as if Rehoboam goes to Shechem in verse 1, and then after he goes to Shechem, then Jeroboam in verse 2 uh, hears of Rehoboam meeting with them in Shechem, and he's down in Egypt. And then he has to travel from Egypt back north to the northern kingdom to come to this meeting. This would take a couple of months, so it doesn't, doesn't fit. The best way to understand this, and it fits better with... Um, the way things are written in Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 2 as well, is that to understand verse 1 as a summary of what is going to happen. This is going to tell the story about what occurred when Rehoboam met with the ten northern tribes in, in Shechem. In verse 2 we read, So it happened when Jeroboam, this is where the action is actually starting, when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard it And you note that in your uh, English Bible, it probably has it in italics, which means the it is not there in the original, but it is supplied, and it's understood in the Hebrew that he would have heard something. And so the something that he would have heard 
would probably be a reference back to the death of Solomon that is described in verses 41 through 43 at the end of the previous chapter. So the way the events would take place here is that verse 1 is a summary telling us about this meeting. The action actually begins in verse 2. Jeroboam is in exile down in Egypt, and he hears that Solomon has died, and so he knows that Rehoboam is going to succeed to the throne. And at that point, he goes back to uh, Israel. And he, once he arrives back in Israel, his presence is known, and the ten northern tribes call a meeting at Shechem, and they want Rehoboam to come to Shechem where they are going to present their concerns to him and whether and decide whether or not they are going to accept him to be their king. Now, this may seem to be a little uh, strange to us that they should have accepted him to be king, but remember there was a, a, a rift that had occurred that had been present at the time that David became king that apparently has is still it never fully disappeared. It still was there and had become aggravated by the excessive uh, taxation of Solomon, the fact that he was not uh, calling upon laborers from Judah but was putting excessive demands upon the other tribes to, to provide laborers, and so that just exacerbated this jealousy. When David first became king at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1. We're told in 2 Samuel 2, verse 9, that he was king of Judah first for seven years and six months before he could finally unite the ten northern tribes into one nation. And it wasn't for seven and a half years before the the twelve tribes are united under David. So there's this uh, this division that had been present even at the beginning of David's reign. So now that Rehoboam is going to take the throne, they have certain grievances that they want to present to him, and depending on whether or not he is going to uh, respond in a way that they, they like, uh, they may or may not give him allegiance, and of course we know how it's going to end. So they have this meeting, and they call Jeroboam, who has by this time returned from Egypt, to be their spokesperson, their spokesman. And in verse 3 we read, They sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, and then in verse 4 they put forth their case, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So they put forth their request, and that is to lighten the load. The concept of yoke here represents a burden or obligations. This involved two things. On the one hand, taxes, and on the other hand, forced labor. And I've gone over this in the past, that uh, Solomon's glory was not built on the taxes of the people. It was the blessing of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, there, there weren't uh, taxes because that was the warning that God had given. That was the warning that God had given Israel back in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 8 is that when they had a king, 
the, the trend would be to build a stronger and stronger centralized government, bring more and more power into, uh, into Washington, uh, excuse me, into Jerusalem. And of course, we've seen the same kind of thing going on in, uh, for the last, I think, about 150 uh, years, 150 years in America, where you have had more and more power accumulate to the central government in Washington. And at the more government grows, the more the bureaucracy grows, the more the bureaucracy grows, the more the tax base has to grow in order to feed the bureaucracy. And government is never, never efficient. And so taxes continue to, to pile up. And the burden is placed on the people and the trend on government leaders is to think that the money that they get in taxes is their money. And then they can do with it whatever uh, they want to. They feel they have a, a, they're entitled to that money and that that is used in many, many cases, not in all cases, but in many, many cases just to further their own agendas. And we hear about, uh, especially today, we hear about the earmarks and we hear about pet projects and different Congressional districts that are constantly put into uh, different bills, tacked on at the end, and often they're not even uh, noticed by most of the uh, congressmen voting on the bills, and they just get put into action. This this last bailout deal that got turned down uh, uh, yesterday had had one example of this. That one of the uh, somebody slipped in at the last minute over the over the weekend a proposal and it got spotted by a Republican fortunately and was taken out before the vote on Monday but it was a proposal that a 1% of all of the successful mortgages that the government would take over and if these mortgages that they actually got paid off 1% of the money that the government made from that would go to uh, ACORN which is a far left wing political action group and so some Democrats slipped that in there, some liberals slipped that in there to fund his, his pet project. And that's just one example of the complete uh, failure of leaders that we have on both sides of the aisle to focus on statesmanship and that which is right as opposed to truly being a leader and the servant of the people. And that's a major theme that we see in 1 Kings chapter 12, is that Rehoboam fails to be a leader because he thinks that, looks at the people as a means to promote himself, promote his own agenda, to provide for all of the uh, affluence of the position of king. And so he does what most governments do, and he looks at the people as a means of income that he's entitled to what, uh, to what they produce. And that is uh, 180 degrees contrary to the biblical principles of leadership. And so they are aggravated because Solomon, rather than being objective as a leader, has put an excessive burden upon on the people, and so they want that uh, yoke lightened. Now, Rehoboam then doesn't want to make a hasty decision, which shows a measure of wisdom. And he goes to uh, two groups of counselors for advice. And uh, the first group he goes to are the group referred to as the elders. These are 
were probably an official group of advisors to his father Solomon. And this is referred to in verse 6. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servant forever. And these elders understand that a key principle in leadership is that the leader is there to serve the people, not to, the people aren't there to serve the leader. Uh, and too often that's the problem is leaders think that what we have is, is theirs and they, they are entitled to it. Now Jesus has some comments about this. Hold your place here and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And we see how this idea of leadership is pretty standard throughout the fallen world. It's typical of the view of leadership within the kingdom of man in contrast to the kind of leadership that is to be exhibited in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons, this is the mother of of a John and James, Zebedee is their father, and the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. I've always thought that this this woman just had tremendous chutzpah. Got to use a good Yiddish word to describe this. To come to Jesus in the open and in the presence of the other disciples and to make this kind of request for her son. She says, she kneels down in front of him, and he says, what do you wish? And she, in verse 21, and she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. So she is requesting that Jesus will give them the highest positions, second to him, second only to him, in the kingdom. And Jesus answered and said, You don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized? And they said, We are able. See, in their arrogance, they don't have a clue what he's even talking about in terms of the fact that he's referencing his uh, spiritual death on the cross. And he goes on to talk about this and to talk about leadership. We'll skip the next couple of verses, skip down to verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That is a universal description of the leadership in the kingdom of man, is that leaders think that they are there to rule the people for their own benefit. And this is the standard operating procedure in the kingdom of man. Those who are uh, great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be, Jesus says in verse 26, so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as, and here's the comparison, the comparison is always to Jesus Christ. He always models what genuine leadership is like. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that was the problem that the Jews had when they thought that Jesus was coming, the Messiah was coming at, at, at the uh, first advent, 
as they thought he was coming to establish this political kingdom to defeat the Romans and to bring glory to the kingdom of Judah. And they didn't understand that the cross had to precede the crown, that first Jesus had to come and die on the cross to pay the sin penalty before he could establish the kingdom. And so because they didn't understand uh, the dynamics there, they rejected him as Messiah because in their mind he had everything backwards. But the reality is that because of arrogance and the sin nature, man puts things backwards, and we think that we have to promote ourselves promote our own agenda rather than putting the focus on serving others and the focus of any kind of leadership, whether it's in the military, whether it's in the home, whether it's in school, is to uh, provide that which is best for those you are leading and to give direction to them. And that is how uh, you exhibit your care for people is to take care of them and to provide for them. So the leader who sees his people as simply a means, a stepping stone for his own promotion and his own agenda uh, is not a leader at all. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. So uh, Rehoboam is going to fail the leadership test. He fails the leadership test and he puts his focus on what is going to promote his own uh, agenda and to promote his own kingdom. So after he talks to the uh, elders in verse 7, then in verse 8, we're told he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him who stood before him. So these young men who were his peers, his cronies, these are referred to rather sarcastically by the writer of, of Kings as the Yeladim, which is a word for children. They too are simple in the sense of Psalm 19. They are naive and youthful, and they finally see that, okay, the older generation is finally uh, passing from the scene, and we're going to get to do things the way we want to do things, and we're going to change everything. And we want to make sure that we get the same uh, riches and the same glory that Solomon had, and there's no capacity, there's no understanding that the reason Solomon's kingdom had all the glory that it had was because of God's blessing on Solomon because of his devotion to him at the beginning. But at the end, God was beginning to discipline the nation. They were uh, losing the blessing of God, and the only way Solomon could maintain the facade of wealth and glory was to tax the people. And so they wanted to continue that, and they wanted to have the all of the same, uh, same facade, same veneer that, that Solomon had had. So he goes to his cronies, and he says to them, What advice do you give? Verse 9. How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, This is what you should say to the people who have spoken to you. And I think, again, this shows tremendous arrogance. Thus you shall say to them, Your father made our, uh, when they say your father made our yoke heavy, you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. This is an idiom that the, the lightest thing, or, or, or what my father did in terms of just his little finger, is going to be uh, much 
heavier, the burden I'm going to put on you is going to be uh, much, much uh, heavier. That my little finger is going to weigh a lot more. The littlest that I do is going to weigh a lot more than the heaviest uh, burden that my father put upon you. And he goes on, they'll go on to say in verse 11, Now whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, and this is a standard word for just a leather thong whip, but I shall chastise you with, the New King James translates it scourges, uh, the original says scorpions, and uh, the term scorpion was actually a term used to describe a particular type of whip that had uh, barbed points, uh, woven into the leather that had a sharp point on the end that resembles the point on the end of a scorpion sting. And so the difference would be being whipped with just leather whips as opposed to a whip that had these metal barbs uh, woven into it, which would be much, much more uh, painful. So their whole point is that we're not only are we not going to reduce the, the tax load, we're going to increase it exponentially uh, to teach you a lesson. And the result of that, of course, is that it just uh, establishes the split between the southern tribes and the ten northern tribes. And so we see the same attitude among uh, the uh, uh, contemporaries of Rehoboam there They look on the resources, the work of the people as something that they are entitled to. And this is just a further fulfillment of the prophecy of Samuel back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that once they had a king, the trend would be towards increasing centralized power. And as the power becomes more and more centralized, then the government itself begins to view itself as being entitled to the resources of the people, and this always destroys freedom and liberty and is always antagonistic to biblical truth. So we come to verse 12. Verse 12, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed. And we read in verse 13 that the king answers the people, rejects the advice of the elders, and tells the representatives of the ten northern tribes, what his uh, young friends have told him to say, that they are going to, he is going to increase the load upon them. And the conclusion is given in verse 15. Now, verse 15 is also an editorial comment under inspiration of Scripture by the writer of First Kings. He writes, So the king did not listen to the people for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So the writer tells us that what happens here, even though you see, and this is where you see how the sovereignty of God fits with the volition of man, that the sovereignty of God doesn't compromise or override the volition of man, but we see how man is making his decision within the framework of God's plan that the uh, that Rehoboam of his own volition rejected, had rejected God, rejected uh, humility, 
and rejected his the uh, request of the people, and so there results in a split. And this is exactly what uh, the what uh, Ahijah had informed Jeroboam about back in uh, verse 26 and following of the previous chapter. And he had used this very uh, graphic illustration beginning in verse 30 of taking a new garment and tearing it into 12 pieces and telling Jeroboam to take 10 for himself, that God would tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give 10 of the tribes to Rehoboam. Now, in that promise, back there in verse uh, 31, down through 33, there was an embedded promise that God would bless Jeroboam and would establish his house if he would follow the Lord. Now, that's in verse 38. It shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house. But that never happened because God in his omniscience knew that Jeroboam would reject him and that Jeroboam would set up a false, an alternate religious system in the northern kingdom. So God would not be uh, beholding to that particular uh, promise. Now in verse 16, we read about the consequences of Jeroboam's act, I mean, Rehoboam's actions. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. So at this point, they reject the house of David. They reject the uh, God's promise to David of a, of a king on the throne, and they separate themselves from the tribe of Judah. And they call, make a cry to your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So it's a complete split between the two uh, the two sections. Verse 17 we read, But Rehoboam then reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. This again seems to be a topical sentence. The first part, verses 1 through 16, has been covered by that first sentence, Rehoboam went to Shechem. All Israel went to Shechem to make him king. And so we've heard all about what happened at Shechem. And then verse 17 opens the next section dealing with the reign of Rehoboam over the tribe of Judah. Verse 18 begins with the first detail. The first thing that Rehoboam does is he's going to try to win back these tribes. Now, he doesn't show a lot of wisdom in the way that he does this. The first thing he's going to do is send the um, head of the IRS into the northern kingdom with a group of tax auditors in order to start collecting taxes. Now, that just doesn't seem like the wisest thing to do. He sends uh, Adoram, who is in charge of the revenue. This is his secretary of the treasury or the head of the IRS or something similar to that. And he's going to send him north, and he would not have gone by himself, but he would have taken uh, a group with him in order to begin to collect taxes. And the tribes in the north are not very welcoming, and they stone him with stones. Now, there's a lot more that went on here than 
we read in the text. This is just the Holy Spirit is just being very efficient with words here and just giving us just a extremely brief synopsis of what took place. But we can imagine that as they went north, there was probably some sort of ambush, and this man was taken, and then he was, some sort of sentence was pronounced on him in the north, and then they stone him to death, and the others are released to go back and give word to Rehoboam what has happened uh, to adore him. So Rehoboam then has uh, realizes what's going on. He gets in his chariot, flees back to Jerusalem, and the writer says in verse 19, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now, not to this day, that's when I'm reading it to you, but it's to the day in which the writer of Kings writes this. So we don't know who exactly it was who wrote this, one of the uh, prophets. It could have been Elijah or Elisha or one of the other prophets. We're not sure. The, we don't know who the final person was who put all of this together, uh, put all of Kings together in its final edited form. But it would have probably been, uh, whoever wrote this section of it, this would have been written before the northern kingdom was taken out into uh, captivity by the Assyrians in 722. And just gives us an indication, as it did to the original readers, that this represented a an account that was written at the time that these things happened. It wasn't written uh, some... Uh, five or six hundred years later, which is what liberal scholars would come, will come along and say today, that these things were written uh, after the Babylonian captivity, and they're, they're not historically accurate. But it's, it's these verses like that that indicate to us that these were written by eyewitnesses who could say, and this is the way it is even to this day. Now, in verse 20, we read, Now it came to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him, called for him, him, called him to the congregation, and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah alone. Now, Judah has pretty much been dominant, and as we look at our map, we see that Benjamin is in this transition area between the northern kingdom and the south, but by this time, actually, Benjamin had sort of been absorbed by Judah, so that Benjamin and Judah have basically become, for all practical purposes, uh, one tribe. The distinction is no longer clearly there. There are sometimes in these passages, Benjamin's mentioned separately, but mostly it's just treated as one, uh, one complete tribe. Now, when Rehoboam goes back to Jerusalem, he pulls the army together, calls for uh, the army to assemble 180,000 chosen men, warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to bring them back uh, under control. But something interesting happens. The word of God comes to Shemaiah, the man of God. Now, this is the only reference in Scripture to Shemaiah. We don't know anything about him. This is just one of the numerous prophets and men of God that existed throughout Israel. And this man comes forward, comes to Rehoboam, and tells him uh, that the Lord says, verse 24, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is for me. And surprisingly, this arrogant young king, this arrogant new king, 
listens to Shemaiah and stands down the army, and they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Now, in 1 Kings, this is all that we're basically told about Rehoboam until we get over to about chapter, the end of chapter 14. The end of chapter 14, we're told a few more things about Rehoboam, and these things are reiterated as well in Second Chronicles chapter 11. And I want to shift our focus just to briefly summarize this to see what happens to Rehoboam. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 11. Second Chronicles chapter 11. Chronicles focuses more on the on the, the tribe of Judah and the house of David, whereas First Kings gives us more information about what happens with the northern kingdom. And what we learn is that after uh, Rehoboam sought to use the military to bring the northern kingdom back under control, apparently he went through a period for three years where he was obedient to the Lord. And this is described in Second Chronicles 11, verses 13 and following. And it also shows that there is a strong group of believers in throughout the northern kingdom that are not following in the rebellion of Jeroboam and his apostasy, which we'll get into next time. Verse 13, we read, And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites, who were in all Israel, took their stand with him. So they take their stand with Rehoboam in the south, knowing that he is the son of David, and they reject the moves, the religious moves of Jeroboam in the north. And the Levites, verse 14, left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Jeroboam sets up a completely alternate religion and priest system. And skipping down a couple of verses, after the Levites left, uh, verse 16, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So what we see here fits with what we've been studying on Sunday morning in Revelation, is that you had a number of of believers in the northern kingdom, in the in the ten tribes, who reject the apostasy of Jeroboam, and they move south. The Levites move south, and many others move south. So from this point on, the southern kingdom is going to have, with living within it, not only members of the tribe of Judah, but also members of the ten tribes in the north. So once again, you don't have the, this uh, a true loss of the ten northern tribes. There's no such thing as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well, after Rehoboam has three good years of following the Lord, he is going to shift away from obedience to the Lord. He's going to once again instill idolatry into the southern kingdom, and God is going to bring discipline on him through Shishak, who is the pharaoh of Egypt, and the southern kingdom is going to be invaded and the gold from the temple, the gold shields, much of the gold that's there is going to have to be melted down by Rehoboam and paid as tribute 
to Shishak, and much of this gold is then going to be taken back to Egypt. And so, again, the glory of, Israel, of, of Judah, the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of the temple is going to uh, be diminished because of the sinfulness, because of the arrogance of the southern kingdom. And this is going to be a visible uh, indication that God's blessing upon the nation is not what it once was and that they are under divine judgment. We'll get into the next section, which is one of the most interesting, dealing with Jeroboam and what he does. It's one of the early examples of of government-sponsored historical revisionism and uh, the use of religion in order to uh, promote a political agenda that we have uh, in, in Israel. It's the first time we really see this in Israel. And then it's going to also have uh, bring to bear some fascinating, uh, pro- a fascinating prophecy, rather, in uh, chapter 13 related to the prophecy brought by uh, uh, this man of God who comes to uh, who comes to uh, Jeroboam at the beginning of chapter 13. So there's a lot of a fascinating material here in the next couple of chapters that we'll get into next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be reminded that you work in history, that even through the ups and downs you are still faithful, and that Our responsibility as believers is to be consistent in our walk with you and our learning of your word and application of it in our lives. And even as we see the uh, ups and downs and the ebb and flow of politics and history around us, we know that uh, you are consistently stable and faithful and that we should not worry, that we should not be anxious or fearful because you are still in control Uh, despite the changes that occur around us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our confidence in you through your word and the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.